Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Kemi Sharia. And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter. Where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers, and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. Hello, and welcome back to Fashion No Filter. Hey, everyone. We're in a bit of a... A bit of a funny location today. Although, a location in which Fashion No Filter has previously been recorded... You may remember the walk-in closet of French actress Anna Jardot from season one. The Modern Muse episode. Ça va, Anna? Ça va, les filles? Anna, thank you for letting us sit in your closet. Take shelter in your closet. We had a bit of uh, drama today. Um, the Gilets Jaunes have taken Paris under siege, and uh, we were going to be recording in my apartment. But that was no longer possible. So without further ado, let's uh, talk about our guest. Yes, we are really excited about the interview we have for you today as part of our new series on fashion after Me Too. Vanessa Friedman is the fashion director and chief fashion critic of the New York Times. Big job. Big job. Any fashion person worth their salt knows she is one of the ultimate arbiters for designers in our industry. Before joining the New York Times, Vanessa was also fashion editor of the Financial Times. So there she was really bringing fashion analysis to the world's financially-minded elite. Everyone gets up in the morning and they make a decision about what they're going to put on their bodies. Therefore, it is something that we should look and think about, she told The Cut. Increasingly, as information gets conveyed visually, whether it's by a picture on a phone or online, the choices you make about what you put on are more and more important. So our attitude is... Let's look at this. Let's think about why we're making these choices and what they mean and what they can say to everybody else and talk about it. Vanessa is fair, direct and pragmatic and holds members of the fashion industry accountable from racist designers to perving photographers, but also whilst reviewing their collections each season, designers who have missed a beat in creating intelligent, relevant clothing for the modern woman or man. Like, I think um, we can use the example of the Eddie Sleeman collection this season. That For Celine, yeah. Didn't, didn't quite hit. Just didn't feel that relevant, did it? Yeah, I think. So we spoke to Vanessa on the line from NYC, who told us about the process of breaking the Mario Testino and Bruce Weber story, the players that really need to be held accountable, and the role of the fashion industry in the larger Me Too reckoning. Hope you enjoy the interview. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Vanessa, you you spent months investigating the sex the sexual misconduct of fashion photographers Mario Testino and Bruce Weber over the span mm-hmm. of their careers. Can you tell us how does a story like this come together from beginning to end? I, I imagine it was a long journey. It really it began when um, the Times published their investigation of Harvey Weinstein and um, and and the New Yorker and you know both because we started looking at his connection to the fashion world and because that really was a gate opener for so many women in so many industries who started to come forward with their stories and so we were contacted by numerous people. Um, about misconduct in the fashion industry and began to think about how, you know, how, how we could treat that. And, you know, it's, it's a very complicated question and a very serious one, both for the victims and for the, the people who allegedly misbehaved. And so we thought we had to, um, create certain, a certain structure for ourselves to determine what really would be, the subject of investigation and where we came down is that we would look um, look into people who exhibited a pattern of behavior over time, you know, one that continued until the, the very recent past. We thought that was very important mm-hmm. and, um, you know, where there was a clear abuse of professional power. And after, you know, talking to many, many people and hearing many stories, it, um, we ended up really looking at Bruce and Mario because they met that criteria. And how hard was it for you to get victims, um, models in this case, to, to go on the record? Um, it was, it was, it's always incredibly difficult because these are, you know, very sensitive, very personal stories. And, you know, we also were looking at male models. You know, one of the things that we felt is that, you know, in fashion in particular, unlike almost every other industry, male models models are actually at the bottom of the totem pole, much more so than women. And the question of sexual harassment and abuse of power is 
you know, is one that is not gender specific. And there was a lot of focus on the way these issues had impacted women, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, which is incredibly important. But we wanted to make sure that, you know, the the point that it also applies to men and that men are also victimized was not lost in this in the story. Um, and, you know, for men, it's even it was even more complicated to come forward because I think there was a lot of shame mm-hmm. attached to allowing yourself to be victimized, particularly if you're a male model who tends to be, you know, someone who is tall and strong and, and heterosexual you know, out, it doesn't look like somebody who would be the victim of abuse necessarily mm-hmm. it doesn't look like someone who's powerless um and you know and and there's a certain stigma attached to to you know homosexuality and men being victimized by other men so it was the you know the sort of the natural nervousness around coming forward about sexual harassment was compounded by these factors. So we talked to a lot, a lot of people. And, you know, in the end, there were lots who didn't want to go on the record, um, also because they were still working and they were very nervous about the fashion power structure and were convinced Mm -hmm. that if they allowed their names to be attached to this kind of story, they would never get another job. Right. Well, yeah. So Mayor Testino had actually created somewhat of a family man image for himself over the years. He regularly immortalized the British royal family's key moments, for example, or as Mm -hmm. you wrote in one of your pieces, he first photographed Madonna uh, with her newborn baby when she had her Mm -hmm. first child. I also, you know, Kemi and I, having been part of the London fashion world for the past Mm -hmm. 10 years, we know, shameful as it is to admit it, that uh, Testino's misconduct was kind of one of fashion's worst kept secrets. What do you think uh, everyone protected him for so long for despite the whispers? Why was everyone working, almost working together to protect him? Mm-hmm. Um, I just I, also, I just want to make a point before I get into that, which is that this was very much a team effort. And it was something I did with the help of um, my colleagues, Jacob Bernstein, yeah. Matthew Schneier, and mm-hmm. Elizabeth Payton. You know, it really, yeah. it was a huge lift on many, many yes. people's part. And I was just a small part of it. And they, you know, everyone did an enormous amount of work on it. Um, so in terms of Mario and people covering it up, I think, you know, there were a lot of people who, who weren't covering it up. They simply, their relationship with Mario was one that was positive and, you know, loving and, you know, and he was um, yeah. perfectly properly behaved. You know, I think one of the really important um, factors in these stories is that it is absolutely possible for some, for two coexisting realities to be true, mm-hmm. you know, for yeah. someone to be absolutely you know, proper and decorous and supportive in one case and abusive in another. And, you know, one of the things we saw when the story came out was a lot of people coming forward and saying, my experience with Bruce, with Mario was incredibly positive. I can't believe this, you know, and, and I absolutely believe that, you know, that, that mm-hmm. people did have very, very positive long-term relationships w- with him. I'm sure the Royal family had fantastic experiences <laughs> well, with <yes>. Mario Testino, <laughs> you know, um, and also Mario, you know, his, his kind of the abuse of power that we found was not just with models. It was also with his assistants, you know, which is something that takes place behind closed doors when people are other, you know, people are not around. Yeah. So, you know, it's very, possible for both these things to be true and and I think that's one of the hardest things for the world to kind of get their heads around um, because you can have a wonderful relationship with someone who in another situation 
you know, is not a wonderful person. Um, and, you know, so I think people did know about it, but also fashion itself is such a gray industry and sex and the selling of sex is such an important part of it yeah. that it's very hard to define where the line is between, you know, what is something you do to make a great picture and something that, you know, is just simply not acceptable in terms of the behavior between, you know, a photographer and a model or a photographer and um, the people who work for them. You know, there's a huge premium placed on kind of creative freedom and the monster sacré and what it takes to get, you know, a piece of art or its equivalent um, into the world. So all these things were contributing, you know, issues to I think people not even knowing if what had happened to them was actually acceptable or not acceptable. Yeah, and, true. Uh, and on this issue of blurred lines, you know, where, where the so what is sexually acceptable and not in the name of art in our industry, where those lines are blurred, um, do you think that's why there are more exceptions made by members of the fashion industry these days? I mean, if you compare it to Hollywood or politics, there do seem to be... Um, Assume, yeah, it does seem to be like the lines are more blurred, especially if you think about the fact that the industry is dominated by so many powerful women. By powerful women, the industry is also full of, you know, individuals who in other industries would probably categorize themselves as kind of outsiders or, you know, the powerless, you know, whether it's because of their, you know, their sexuality or their race or their gender. You know, I mean, fashion is a kind of haven for people who would consider themselves misfits often, mm. you know, people mm. who are considered more powerless in the kind of grand scheme of society and politics and culture. Such a nice and, point. You know, that's another, I think, contributing issue to this is like, how can they be, you know, abusing their power because they so understand what it is to be, you know, in the minority or in the kind of disaffected. I think a lot of it, as much as the the kind of enshrinement or iconization of the artist, is also the fact that fashion is really about, you know, selling seduction, selling desire. Yeah. When you are creating an ad campaign or you are doing an editorial, you know, you are trying to create a picture that to the viewer, that makes the viewer want something, right? Like you're, right. you want to make them to want, you want them to want a product. And, you know, that that kind of emphasis on seduction is, you know, of really, it's a, it's a difficult thing. You know, if you're a model and you're out there trying to, you know, get someone to want whatever you're selling, how do you then say, well, yes, but this is just business. You can't, you and know, to want, and I'm to want people limits. to work with you again. Yeah. It's a fine line for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and models often, you know, this is all complicated again by the very murky financial structure of the modeling industry where, you know, the girls often, particularly the not famous girls, you know, none of this really applies to what we think of as supermodels. Right. Um, and it was, you know, when we were investigating this, it was very clear that, you know, girls like Karen Nelson, who came forward, um, you know, to talk about her own experience when she was starting out, you know, once she became successful and very well known, you know, this did not happen to her. Um, you know, you are really protected by fame in fashion in a way that um, I think you are similarly in Hollywood, although maybe not even as much. Um, you know, so the victims are often the girls who have the least they're the least well-known, the most disposable, you know, same with the men. They're, you know, male models are almost entirely disposable and think of themselves as disposable. So that makes you both willing to, you know, accept much more misbehavior 
than you would maybe naturally. And um, it also makes them very insecure because they don't really know, you know, where their money is coming from. Well, and just going back to your piece uh, from March 3rd, many accusers, few apologies, because mm-hmm. it really struck a chord with me. Do you think in the case with, of Testino and Weber, it's possible that reactions were somewhat muted because the accusers are male rather than female? Or is it possible that deep down society just has trouble feeling true sympathy for really, really good looking people who are paid to be really good looking? I mean, is it that simple? Um, I think that, that that's part of it. I also think it had to do with whoever was advising um, both men. You know, yeah. Jacob Bernstein, who wrote the story with me, and I were both very uh, struck by the fact that although in almost every other industry, it seemed like the uh, um, the kind of conventional wisdom said, if someone comes out with this story, whether or not you're willing to admit it, you always say, I am terribly sorry if my behavior was, you know, misconstrued in any way, and I hurt somebody without understanding it. And neither, you know, Mario did not say that, and, um, you know, very actively did not say that, yeah. nor really did Bruce. And I think that that was surprising to us. Uh, and probably had to do with the people who are around them. And, you know, it may also be true. You know, if you get away with something for a very long time, um, and it's not, you know, it was clearly harassment and abuse of power. It wasn't, you know, um, criminal, uh, the stories we were hearing. Um, Then, you know, you probably, you know, you may not think what you were doing was wrong. (sighs) Uh, you know, because that, that, that definition changes over time. You know, one of the interesting things about all the sexual harassment investigations and stories is that you can see the way society and society's attitudes have evolved. Mm. You know, if you think about fashion in the 1980s, you know, there were boundless stories about um, sexual harassment and abuse that had already come out in the press with names attached to them. Yeah. And everyone sort of tissed about it. And then everything just went on as normal. You know, so the biggest question for me now is, um, you know, is will all this actually lead to real change in the industry? You know, are we finally at a point where things are going to move on? Well, right. And so what I wanted to ask you next is, in your opinion, whose responsibility is it to make sure that this doesn't happen again? I mean, is it all of us? Is it the agents? Is it, uh, I mean, the photographers, obviously, but how, where do we go from here? I think it's absolutely every person's responsibility and perhaps even more so the, you know, the, the kind of power players in the industry. We, I looked into this uh, during fashion week in September to find out if, you know, largely for female models and also for male models, if anything had changed during fashion week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what most of them said was that attitudes seem to have changed, particularly on shoots. Um, that there is a little more respect, that people are scared, uh, that they are mostly, you know, more polite, (laughs) that there's a kind of discussion about touching in a way that there wouldn't have been before. You know, in other words, if a stylist is going to adjust a garment or a photographer is going to adjust a garment, they'll say, you know, may I do this or I'm going to do this now. And, you know, is it okay? That, but that may, you know, that that's probably a product of nervousness as much as anything, you know, but that actually in terms of serious sort of systemic change, it isn't that different. Uh, and certainly when I was at shows backstage talking to designers, 
some of them very clearly had created separate changing areas for the model. I was really struck when I was backstage at Etro because what had been a big open space that you could sort of walk by to get to the, the catering area mm-hmm. um, yeah. and where you could always see girls changing, you know, by the racks was now completely walled off. They had put up a kind of uh, temporary wall and you couldn't see anything. Well, that's good. Um, Progress. Yeah, but there were other, you know, plenty of other shows where it was exactly the same. And they, you know, sort of do an interview with the designer, turn around, and there'd be some half-dressed girls kind of body was right in your face. So, right, or you're there, and then they suddenly see that they're there, and they just start shouting at all the press, like, oh, stop looking, stop looking. It's like, that. that's not that's not how it works. Yeah, it's not they about... They didn't even do that. They, yeah. You know, no one ever said to me, oh, yeah. can you give the girls some privacy? Really? We're going to do the interview really? over here. And, you know, and it, it clearly wasn't there to take pictures of half-naked models. No. Uh, I didn't have my camera, you know, I didn't have some taking pictures of anything. But at the same time, you know, just out of kind of decency, you'd think it'd be nice if they did have a curtain or something so girls could change. Yeah. You know, at Michael Kors, I think there was a special room for girls who were under, who were 16 and under. So they had actually been separated from the older models. Uh, but the older models didn't have a separate area. Oh, right. Because if you're over 16, it's all good. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. You know, the age question is incredibly complicated. It is. Because everybody we spoke to, everyone who came forward with their choice, you know, they were all over 18. I think they were almost over 21. So, but, yeah. you know, I think that this sort of idea that after 16, you are able to cope with this or after 18, which is the, you know, which is the line that Vogue is trying to draw on the stand. Mm-hmm. Um, American Vogue, you're able to deal with um with these kinds of questions, I, you know, I, I really wonder about that. Uh, yeah, I think we really question that. Too. Yeah, I mean, arguably, are you ever equipped to deal with these yeah. kind of things when they're coming from someone of power? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. <laughs> you know, when you're 35, you may not. Exactly. If it's someone it that you're working for or that you're trying to sort of impress or that you're mm-hmm. worried about how you're going to further. Your, it's always the same thing, framing the problem within the workspace, because obviously mm-hmm. it's very different being harassed outside in the street and being harassed mm-hmm. by people that you work with and that you're going to mm-hmm. encounter again. And that, mm-hmm. that means something in mm-hmm. terms of your own career, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, people you think hold your future in their hands. Absolutely. You know, certainly when you're talking about, you know, fashion, there is a very sort of small group of gatekeepers. And you can see it because if you go through magazines and you go through ad campaigns, you know, there's literally a handful of photographers who work with a handful of stylists and they, you know, do 60%, 75% of what we see. You know, they are the image makers and they can absolutely, you know, make a career. You know, we hear endless stories about models who were discovered by someone like Stephen Mizell. And, you know, Stephen Mizell has never come up in any of these discussions, so I don't want to imply that at all, just using his name. Um, you know, but who, during a period where he shot every single cover of Italian Vogue, yeah. could, you know... Make you. A, you know, crown a star overnight. For sure. And, um, you know, for a model, that's, you know, and for their agent, you know, that's an incredibly exciting opportunity. Yep. And, and taking a step back from your recent work, extending the Me Too movement, I'd love to talk to you more generally about your role as a fashion critic, because mm-hmm. it does seem like the fashion industry, unlike, I, I would say, maybe food, art, film, it, I mean, is really quite resistant to the concept of critique. There are very few people <laughs> willing to put their objective opinion out there. Why, why do you think this is? 
I mean, well, I think there used there used to be a lot of there used to be no, they used to number. I a shrinking number of us, but that probably has to do as much with the shrinking number of newspapers and you know places to put criticism as anything else. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, I think that um, in fashion there are a lot. You know, a fashion magazine's job is not to be a critic; it's to be a, a booster. Mm. And to, you know, and be a promoter and, you know, celebrate the industry. And that's um, great. And we need it. Uh, you know, whereas the newspaper critic's role is really to be, I think, a kind of almost a watchdog for the industry. And, you know, someone who is willing to say, like, this is good, this is bad, you need to think about this. Um, and I think as fashion has become increasingly um, captivated by direct-to-consumers, you know, mm. as brands have understood their ability to circumnavigate some of this, they have become much more willing to kind of push the critic away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly that was the case with a brand like Dolce & Gabbana. Yeah, um, I was yeah. going to ask you about that, you know, your that, thoughts on that, social media and the role that accounts I mean, the, like the that play. Thing for me with, with Dolce & Gabbana, they long ago banned the New York Times from their shows. Um, Did they really? They were upset. Oh, that's oh, interesting. But, I mean, like years, uh, years and years ago. And when I was at the Financial Times, where I worked until 2014, I, you know, they used to invite me to all their shows and were completely fine with whatever I wrote about them in my reviews. And then when I changed jobs, they said, well, you can't come anymore. And I thought, well, I'm the same reviewer. You know, my approach to criticism hasn't changed my understanding of what you do hasn't changed why do you think that was but they were just like they were like no we don't like the new york times there's nothing to do with the times per se you know so the times strange. is the platform um so that was just very odd to me um so that was when you first realized something was amiss <laughs> it, it just it just seemed i mean it just seemed like a very sort of weird <laughs> illogical position to take. I thought it was, I was like, this is an opportunity for, you know, your shows to kind of be looked at again by Mm. our Mm -hmm. millions of readers. Wouldn't you want that? Um, But apparently not. But it's interesting what's happening in recent years, what with social media sort of Mm -hmm. uh, taking the role, like just being so big and vast and everybody can take on the role of critic or Mm -hmm. influencer, all these different, hat you know stylist everybody can like dabble at all of this mm-hmm. and 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 obviously like a journalist can have a certain opinion about it but it is true that in in a case like what happened with the diet prada dolce gabbana mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. show takedown um that there, there, there definitely is more accountability and that can be credited in some way to social media and the transparency that's kind of issued from from it in the industry what 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 are your thoughts about that uh, transparency and also, um, you know, bullying and and yes. mis misperceptions. I mean, I think you know there it, it's a very messy and cloudy yeah. area, and there are some things about it that are really beneficial because social media does allow um, for the kind of un, the, the formerly voiceless to have a voice and to have an outlet, but it also allows for you know kind of thoughtless attacks and. Yeah. Um, and some real I'm so glad you said that <laughs> mean, mean meanness, um, and you know, and that's on the part of both brands and the people who accuse brands of things. You know, one of the biggest issues that I see is, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about plagiarism on the part of big brands mm-hmm. and you know, copying, particularly of small designers or students. And I think, you know, in the same way that 
the way, you know, surfing the web has given rise to like plagiarism in schools or problems with plagiarism in schools. It's created this issue with design because now, you know, these big teams that exist in brands, you know, who work with a designer and will do kind of the first pass at something that they describe, you know, might well be looking online and just kind of you jump from, you know, page to page or, you know, site to site and you see a picture and you don't even really think about it. Yeah. And later on, it gets kind of regurgitated in your work and you haven't properly signposted it. So my, my guess is a lot of this is, is not intentional. It's not malfeasance in terms of, you know, people setting out to steal a look from someone they think is just not famous um, and th- therefore no one will know. Yeah. But it's a kind of negative product of the digital world. And we just have to put checks and balances in the systems that haven't per- you know, previously existed because they haven't been necessary. Mm in order to give credit where credit is due um, or to make sure that we understand where the antecedents of a look come from. You know, this is just one of these things I feel like the system has not caught up to the reality in, in which we now work. Uh, so, so when you're giving feedback on something, something that, that could be perceived as subjective, like a show or a collection, what mm-hmm. are you looking at? Um, I look at, I, I tend to take myself out of it. You know, one of the ways I distinguish between, you know, what we call bloggers, which is a kind of now I think old fashioned term and one that isn't really right for, um, those, that, that group of individuals, but for one of a better term, long <laughs> to use it. um, you know, as I Fair said, they, their, their reaction to shows or to work is much more personal. Yeah. And it's very visceral and it tends to be like, oh, I like that. I don't like it. It's cute. It's not cute. Mm-hmm. I'd wear it. I wouldn't wear it. For me, none of this has to do with me. Mm-hmm. So I try to think about, you know, first, what is the designer saying about women and women's role at that moment, how it's changed, what their needs are in terms of, you know, their place in the kind of sociopolitical context. And, you know, and does that make sense? And then... Um, what does it have to do with their own history? You know, what came before with the history of the house, with the styles around it? And again, does that, you know, does that make sense? And to really assess it in that context and always to be as fair as I possibly can be to try and understand what they were thinking and, you know, and then be willing to say if something is bad or good, if it works or doesn't work. Yeah. Because so, I, oh, sorry. I'll let you finish. I was going to say, you know, I, I feel really strongly that, in order to make a good review mean something, you have to be willing to say when something is not good. Of course. Yeah. And um, what would make you feel inclined to give a negative review? Is it, the, is it when you can't see who the woman really is, clearly? Or is it maybe um, if you feel like it's going against progress in term- politically or sociopolitically in, in the way that fashion reflects society i mean what would what would trigger a negative review from you yeah it tends to be if um if i feel like a designer's ideas are not are not relevant with the time to the times if they are somehow inhibiting or you know constraining their customer or their woman instead of freeing her liberating her making her stronger and more powerful you know i think generally fashion is there to solve problems you know there's a lot of talk about fashion being punitive to women or, you know, um, or making, you know, constraining women, I actually think it's there to make women's lives better and to help them express themselves and to, you know, free them up to feel stronger, more confident, more themselves uh, than they would 
than they felt before. And so if it doesn't, if a garment doesn't check those boxes or a collection doesn't check those boxes, I think it needs to be pointed out. So, you know, as, as much for the designer as for the, yeah, as for the reader or exactly. the customer, you know, I think that's the yeah. thing. It's like a lot of these, in a lot of these cases, particularly when you're dealing with very established brands that are, you know, global names, the designers are pretty removed from the sort of the ground. And often they are surrounded by people who, you know, are real boosters and cheerleaders for them, which is great. But you also need to be surrounded by someone who will say like, wow, that is not a good idea. (laughs) It's like, take that one out because that one over there is fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you only have yes men around, then you're not going to. I I say this every day, uh, working freelance and having no one sort of critiquing your work and saying less of this, more of that. And just always having to be in your your own sounding board is very difficult. I I think. I mean, I think everyone benefits from great editing including me. <laughs> so, you know, being, helping someone think about that is, is important. So actually, can we talk a little bit about your career? What kind of difficulties have you come up against? I mean, I listened to another podcast where you mentioned something that really struck me about being at a racetrack or something in England and a snooty type sort of oh. scoffing <laughs> at the fashion industry. And it really uh, resonated with me because... It does happen, I think, to all of us. But, you know, within the industry, you kind of have, like, you have the smartest job, for lack of a better <laughs> word. So uh, it's interesting that people would still look at the fashion that way, considering, just considering the money in fashion. It, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, to be fair, that experience was probably about 15 years ago. Okay. So I do, I do think people have, you know, I do think perception of fashion has moved on and, and it is, you know, generally, um, you know, now I get much more emails and calls from people saying, you know, you have the best job. How do I get it? <laughs> um, then I, you know, then I used to, and when I started really doing full-time fashion all the time was at the FT in 2003. And at that point, people still were very, you know, very amused by the <laughs> How idea. How did that I mean, come about? Partly job? by the idea that the FT had a fashion editor. It, um, I had done freelance work for them before, and they had recently changed editor-in-chiefs and, you know, and some of their structure and had decided to have a fashion editor, which is not a position. Because they didn't have that one before, yeah. Had had. They had had, you know, what they called the how to spend it pages, which mm-hmm. were a kind of compendium of high-end consumer products, including clothes, but also, you know, vases and beauty and gardening. Um, And as they started to break out different subjects, according to reader tastes, I think, they realized that, you know, fashion was both a huge industry, as you pointed out, you know, one that really had achieved kind of critical financial mass in the stock market globally, Mm -hmm. and also something that their readers cared deeply about, and it would behoove them to have like a separate page or two to uh, look at that every week. Um, and then, and they called me, or I called them, I think, and they had been thinking about this. And it was just very fortuitous timing. I got very lucky. I mean, I, I don't know if maybe this is too much of an existential question, but if the department really sort of didn't exist, do you think about your work in terms of the legacy that you're going to leave sort of behind you afterwards? No, I thought about it in terms of what would it mean to do to, to create fashion at 
for a newspaper like the Financial Times? And that was a really exciting question. It's the reason I wanted to do it before the FTI had not had a sort of a fully a fashion job. I had been the fashion news and features director of InStyle UK when it launched. And before that, I had been largely an arts and culture reporter, um, you know, starting at Vanity Fair and the New Yorker. So um, what had excited me about committing fully to fashion was the idea that I could really think about what it would mean at a place, you know, that was not about fashion for readers who cared a lot about fashion and for whom fashion played a very important role in their lives and their careers, but who were not, you know, it was not the main job. They're not, not not their main job. And that was really interesting. And I think because I didn't come from a fashion background, I also had a much sort of freer um, sense of what that could mean, you know, and where fashion would sit at the nexus of all these other forces and conversations, whether it was politics or business or, you know, opera or theater or travel. And to me, that's really what's exciting about it is that, you know, fashion offers this incredibly accessible prism on all these other conversations that we engage in. Totally. Yeah. So one last question for you, Mm -hmm. looking into the future. uh, What or who is exciting you in the industry today? Are there any any names you want to call out? God, there's so many. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in in new designers always, whether mm-hmm. it's someone like Maureen Sayre or Akas Lada or Kirby Jean Raymond of Pyre Moss um, in New York, who I think is really one of the most interesting designers working today. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in, you know, some of the young uh, the young executives. I'm I'm very interested, and I don't want to name too many names, but in the crossover that's going on now between fashion and so many other industries, because I feel like it really has become a completely kind of cross-border mm, with discipline, tech and... and and you know, and you see it in the fact that like so many athletes are interested in fashion, that so many actors are interested in fashion. You know, the fact that. Gwyneth Paltrow has almost entirely given up movie making to move into lifestyle design is, I think, really a harbinger of what's coming. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And that's going to be a fascinating evolution to watch. And hopefully every great newspaper will have a great fashion bureau (laughs) (laughs) in the near future. (laughs) I'm sure they will. They have to. Well, um, Vanessa, we won't take any more of your time, but thank you so much for coming on Fashion No Filter. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to Vanessa Friedman for giving us a little insight into her work for the New York Times. Um, we really hope our chat allowed you to understand a little bit more about the hashtag MeToo movement and um, how it's been making real waves within our industry. Um It seems like we're finally reaching a point where industry heavyweights are being held accountable for their Mm. actions, regardless of how powerful or or talented they are. Yeah. I I think it's a real honor for us to hear from someone who has built such a solid reputation as a thoughtful and fair arbitrator in what, I mean, I want to say is the most creative of all industries. Yeah. Well, as always, all the articles and people mentioned during the interview will be in the show notes. Yes. Please don't forget to review and rate us if you enjoyed the show, or I guess even if you didn't. Uh, But it really helps us to work our way up the charts and secure sponsors. 
which allows us to then make more shows Yay. for your listening pleasure. The virtuous, the virtuous circle of creation. Of creation. <laughs> oh, and as always, if you have anything you'd like to share with us, any feedback or questions about the episode, you can find us on Instagram at Fashion No Filter or at fashionnofilter at gmail.com. So holler at us. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.